Turn to Exodus 20. We're going to continue in our study. The Ten Commandments. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. As we go through this study, you'll notice that I'm going to be presenting these commandments in two ways. What is forbidden and then what is required in the command. More on a positive positive note. What is forbidden and what is required? And so tonight I want to begin with that first matter. What does this command forbid? Forbid. And I, I give two answers to that, and we're going to really treat them as just one. But in the first place, this command forbids that anything shall be considered a deity besides God, Yahweh. When the text says, you shall have no other gods before me, some argue that before me can be rendered beside me. But it doesn't mean as a matter of order. It means as a matter of deity. There is no other God beside me, he says in Isaiah, which means there is no other God. And we are not to have any gods before us, before him, meaning put in his place. Secondly, it means no thing may take the place of worship that God alone is worthy of. Now, those are two very close answers, but, and I said, as I said, we'll consider them as one. Now, we know that worship is central to this command. For Yahweh, as he is known, as he reveals himself in verse 2 in the preface that we considered last week, addresses in this false deities when he says no other gods. And this command is given during a time when the entire world, the known world, ran after multiple deities. They were polytheistic. The Egyptians worshipped many gods. As I said last week, they were pantheistic. They worshipped the river and the sun gods and various gods of nature. Animistic as well, believing that there was a soul or a power of some sort behind each natural order in its own isolated order. But already Yahweh has made it abundantly clear, both in the demonstration of his power over Egypt and also in the manifestation of his name when he told Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am that I am, that he alone is God. Now, it's right not only to think about where Israel has come from, meaning Egypt, but also where they're going. They're going into Canaan, which is a land full of idolaters. So that the giving of this command is very timely in the history of God's redemption, his redemptive work of Israel. He's called them out of a land where they've seen idolatry, at, at first hand, God has revealed himself to be greater than those gods as he leads them into a land that is full of false deities. So it's a very timely command. In fact, that can be said of all of these commands. Because God has called Israel out, particularly, to be a holy people. 
to show forth not their own holiness, but to show forth God's holiness, which is, I think, one of the particular usefulnesses, uses of the commands. When we obey the commands, we don't show our holiness in the Ten Commandments. We show the holiness of God. Well, we considered last week, to some degree, God's display or Yahweh's display over his enemies. On one hand, he destroyed his enemies. On the other, we saw his merciful Passover, his merciful uh, uh, redemption of Israel, which uniquely identified him as a place of, in the place of deity, over and against any other idea of what it might look like. Somebody might object that this has anything to do with the rest of the world, this command, because if you read the command, the command says, you shall have no other God before me. Now, in the King James, that's rendered in the second person, plural, ye shall have no other gods before me, which might be more correct in this sense. But the point is, is that this is a moral obligation that not only Israel in this context has to adhere to, this command has a fixed sense to it, to, such that all humanity is required to observe and obey this command. This has fixed in the law of that which is created. Some people, when they, call, when they talk about the Ten Commandments, talk about them as the natural law. That which is ordered from God's ordering of things in nature. And one of the ways that we see that is if God is the only one true God, it is only right to worship him if he so decrees it. And he has always maintained throughout scripture that he alone is to be worshipped. In fact, worship is essentially to render worth. Render what something is worth. And if God is the only God, then only he can be truly worshipped as God. And that is a truth that screams in nature as much as it does in Scripture. Some might ask, since the text says no other gods before me, does that mean we can worship other gods after we've already worshipped Yahweh. So we come here, say on Sunday morning, we render worship to the one true God. Sunday afternoon, we go over to the Buddhist temple or whatever else is going on. And we say, well, we've already rendered what, most of our worship to that God. But now, as the order of importance is moving down because we've rendered that worship before God, Him, now let's just move down. But that's obviously not the sense of the term before the sense of before doesn't merely have to do with order as long as, as if we just worship God before something else. Rather, before means before God's eyes or his presence. Such that we take the command, you shall worship no other God in my presence. No other gods. Meaning, there is never a time when God is not present. There is never a time that permits us to worship something else in his place. Or to even worship something else as it were a deity as, at all. Because there is no other deity. 
You could take it as saying this, since I am Yahweh and there is no other gods, you shall only worship me. But there's also another answer to that question. There are no other gods, right? As I mentioned, we must worship what is truly God. To worship anything else is false worship. It's not only false worship in the sense that it renders unto God what is, or it takes away from God what is due only Him, but it also is self-deceiving. That we would render worship unto any other God but the one true God is a self-deceit. It's vanity. It's very much akin to what Isaiah speaks about and how he mocks in his prophecy concerning the idolaters. They go out to the woods. They cut down a tree. They give it to the craftsman and he fashions a god for them. Well, what are you giving yourself to but the worshiping of this object of nature? And God says, I'm the one who created all things. I am uncreated. There is only me. Therefore, you shall worship no other gods beside me. We must worship what is only and truly God. To worship anything else is false worship and robs God of what he is worth, namely all of our affection, all of our reverence. You'll notice as I've been speaking about this, that I've referenced uh, as an offense of this law that we worship any other thing. Now, he mentioned no other gods. Well, what do I mean? I'm going to look, for, look to Henry Bullinger, a reformer. He's been dead for over 400 years now for a, a very good answer. The strange God, therefore, is that which is not God properly and by nature. You know what you ought to worship? Only God who is God properly and according to his nature. Yea, it is whatsoever we do make to ourselves to be our God besides the very living and eternal God. Listen to this. Wherein we trust. Do you trust other things above God? Wherein we hope. Wherein we call. Which we do love and fear. Wherein we settle and fasten our minds whereupon we do depend, whereupon we make account of our treasure, help, and safeguard, both in prosperity and adversity. What do you depend on? What do you put your trust on? How do we know that this command has to do with worship? It doesn't expressly say worship, does it? There's no explicit mention of worship in the text. I believe the text expects worship to be given to that which is worthy of it. It is implicit that only Yahweh, in verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, is God and therefore worthy. But if you need an explicit text, as so often we like to have, Exodus 34, 14 is an announcement of the renewal of the covenant, this covenant that's being made in Exodus 20. And listen to how it's reiterated here in verse 14. For you shall worship. There's your explicit answer. No other God, for the Lord Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now don't confuse this jealousy with that of someone lacking in confidence, which is usually how we equate jealousy. It's exactly the opposite with God. In fact, his jealousy is good in that it is good 
for the creature that we worship him. His jealousy is for, in some senses, his own people's sake. Because it is good and it's only good that we worship him. It's eternally deadly if we don't. Any other worship scandalizes the image of God in us and renders worth unto God that is less than his value to worship any other thing besides God. Well, what, does the po- what is the positive sense of the command? What does the command require? First of all, and I have just three points under that heading, Yahweh must be our great and only object of worship. And I've said it already, haven't I? I've just said it on the other side. Since we are not permitted to worship any other gods or things, we are thus only to worship the one true God. And remember that this worship is just not an outward conformity. That worship means nothing to God. It involves the affections. It involves exactly what Henry Bollinger said that we can't give unto false gods. It involves our trust. It involves our hope. It involves on him being, it revolves around him being the one we trust or call upon, the one we love and fear, the one whom we settle our mind upon. In fact, this is explicitly taught to us in Scripture. In fact, not taught to us very far from this very text. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the other part in the uh, Pentateuch that reiterates the law. Gives again the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But then when we get to chapter 6, we see a brief summary of them. And then we see the fulfillment or the great command spoken of in verse 4. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment. Now that word is singular. This is the commandment. After he rehearses the law, the Ten Commandments, he says this is the commandment singular. Now, there may be some debate whether he means by that, that going forward as I get to the great command, that's the great command singular, or whether he's speaking of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments as one. Now, if he does, that wouldn't be the first or the only time in Scripture because in James, James chapter 2, 10 through 11, he says if we commit a transgression of any of the laws, we commit transgression of all of them. Why? Because in essence, the law is one because God is one. Because God gave them all. And when we don't, if we commit adultery, we sin against the God who also said, Thou shalt not steal. The offense is one and ultimate. Therefore, the commandments can be spoken of as the law or the commandment. So I believe that's what Moses is speaking of here. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. You see there the impetus of going into Canaan, that you may fear the Lord your God, Now, how will that be known that they fear the Lord their God? You and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commands. Notice that. You will demonstrate your fear of the Lord when you keep his statutes. 
which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. And here, verse 4, and really verse 4 to verse 9, is the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh, our Elohim, the Lord is one. And then verse 5 is that fulfillment, that great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Christ says this is the fulfillment of the law. There is no such thing as worship without affection towards God. There is no such thing. So there is a way for us to fail in keeping what the command forbids or what it requires, even if we keep the commands in outward ways. If we have no inward affection for the one true God, we cannot worship him properly. Therefore, the command includes a sense of adoration. Because God is due our admiration and all adoration. He's due all of our hearts worship. That's why it's not good enough and why Jesus, when he talks to the woman at the well, the woman of Sychar, God is not seeking people to worship him in this place or that place. He is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But that was in the Old Testament as well. That's here in in Deuteronomy. And I believe it's implied also in the first command. There's a warning here, though. And I think it's something we always have to be reminded of, that we not fall off the other side of the coin. And that is to ask the question, can we truly love God if we don't take care to obey his commands? And that's also answered, no. So they need to be one. They need to be full. The worship that we render God needs to be both of the inward affection and the outward conformity to his commands. That is the heart of a Christian. That's not the heart of someone who is doing it to be redeemed. That just sends you back into bondage and in fear, Paul says. That is the heart of someone who has been redeemed and who knows that our place is with God. And he is our father. So we delight to obey him. Now I'm going to speak fairly slowly here because I'm going to talk about God's attributes. When we worship God in this sense, we worship him as the only one true and living God. Therefore, number two, under what we must do, we must worship him because he is God and as such, we worship him For his attributes, because of his attributes. I don't have long, sometimes when we speak about attributes, we speak of them as as lists. Omnipresent, omnipotent, all this stuff. And then we sit there and we write it all down and then we go home and we say, what did we just hear? I'm like that, I don't know if you are. So I'm going to just read a little bit of what I have written down here and I'm going to read it slowly. Sometimes I would just preach, but I, I want us to get these categories in our, in our minds. 
God's attributes are what distinguish him from everything else. The attributes of God cannot be divided from the nature of God. They cannot be reduced. They cannot be separated. When we talk about God's immutability, that he is unchanging, we mean, of course, that he is unchangeable. He cannot be changed. Neither will he change. We can't talk about God. We cannot talk about God in any way while reducing God's immutability. Now, this agrees with what is called in theology the doctrine of the simplicity or the simple nature of God. That means that God is God without reducibility in his will, nature, character, and attributes, meaning he cannot be divided from his attributes. He is not composed of parts. You see why I'm trying to speak slowly. Let me just give you an example. We cannot take God as love, like so many do, and say, see, God is love. Don't talk about judgment, because God is love. We can't pull that apart from the nature of God and say, see, our God is love, because God is just and he's righteous, and he's holy. And if you separate any of his attributes from who he has revealed himself to be, you no longer have God. You have an idol. When we worship God because of his attributes, we worship him for who he has revealed himself to be as a whole, as the one true and living God. God is not in flux. He is not increasing or diminishing in any aspect. He is ever always perfectly God. And since he has revealed himself to us as this, we must worship him and only him for that which he has displayed himself to be. The nature of God as revealed in his attributes are not, listen to this, abstract from God, from the God we worship and love. The nature of God, as he's revealed himself to be in his attributes, are not abstract from the God we worship and love. In fact, when we learn about God in that he is all-loving, in that he is righteous, in that he is all-powerful, and he is unchanging, it should raise our affections to him. To his people, we should never, in a sense, despise him or reject him in any of his revealed attributes. They are not parts that you can take or leave. God is one. They should raise in us affections of awe, godly fear, love, for when we learn of who God is, we're learning about what separates him as God from everything else. There is nothing else that is love. There is nothing else that is just. There is nothing else that is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, omniscient. This is which, what makes God worthy of worship. 
There is no other uncreated God. This is what makes him unique. This is what makes him, in a word, holy. When we talk about God as holy, we talk about a God as one who combines all of his attributes, all of his characteristics in one nature. When we say God is holy, it's describing God as other, as God separate, as God other, absolutely distinct from all creation. And we ought to worship him because he is God in that sense. Because his attributes declare that he is utterly unique. We can see his attributes worked out in his workings of redemption. If you would take a survey and you went back to what God revealed about himself and what he was going to do for Abraham as a promise to Abraham for Abraham's seed, you can see some of his attributes at work. Some of these attributes are displayed, and because of that, we ought to worship him because of it. You talk about his omniscience. He came to Abram 400 years before his people, Abram's children, which numbered only a few at the time. Actually, I'm sorry, at the time, they numbered zero And he was already increased in age, and his wife was already barren and had never had a child. And he says, I am going to multiply your seed like the stars of the heavens. And here we are 400 years later, and God's omniscience is revealed in that this multitude comes out of Egypt, and that multitude is described as being as numerous as the stars in heaven. Seventy people they were when they went into Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, they were as numerous as the stars in heaven. The omniscience of God on display. What about the love for God continued to pursue Israel in spite of their helpless estate, both spiritually and physically, that demonstrates his inestimable love? What about his power? He had not only foreordained every event, think about Joseph being led into Egypt. Joseph said, God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What about Pharaoh? He says of Pharaoh, I have raised Pharaoh up to get glory over Pharaoh. He not only foreordained every event, but also had the power to carry out his purposes over every power that opposed him on earth. What about the justice displayed in his victory over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, and even in his Passover, which typified, as I said last week, his unmitigated justice, fulfilled in the sufferings and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, God's justice ought to be extremely beautiful to Christians. I can see why the non-believer would repulse from it. But to us, our sins have not just been passed over and God is just going to leave them somewhere. Jesus paid for them. The justice of God was met in Christ for our sins. Every sin that has ever been or will ever be committed will be met with justice because God is is just. He's a just judge. And that's demonstrated in 
his victory over Pharaoh and Egypt. Is a God like this not worthy of all worship? And how does our heart respond when we think of what God has done for us? Because of who he is. You realize the things that we rejoice in, all of the works on our behalf that God has done, he has only done because he is able to do them. Third, finally, we must worship him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've already argued this in the second introduction. There can be no true worship if we neglect any of God's revelation of himself. In the Old Testament, the Trinity is present. Genesis 1, 26, and Psalm 51, 11, and Isaiah 7, 14, many other chapters. It's present, but it's not explicit. It's somewhat veiled in the Old Testament. And we even see that when we come to the New Testament in various places. Paul speaks about the mystery which is in Christ in Colossians chapter 2. Also in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery in Colossians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 speaks of Christ. And I believe the context there means without the knowledge of Christ, without Christ we can never arise to the same knowledge of God. We cannot reject the knowledge of Christ and know God any longer. Since he has been revealed, to reject Christ is to reject the highest revelation of God, the clearest revelation of God, such that if you reject Christ, you reject God. You reject Yahweh. What about the mystery of the Holy Spirit? In Acts 19.2, some of those who were baptized by John, it's said of them, and he said to them, Did ye receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now there is mention of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Very many places, in fact, in the Old Testament. But these who had believed, they believed in John the Baptist's words about the coming Messiah, and they were believers, had not even heard that there be a Holy Spirit. And so they were truths that were spoken of in the Old Testament, but they were veiled, and they were explicitly and clearly revealed in the New Testament. What about Christ? I could go to a thousand texts concerning his deity. What about John 8.42? If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceed forth, speaking of his eternal generation from the father, listen to this, and come from God. I proceed forth. It's the same language used to speak about the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Speaking of His eternal begottenness of the Father. The context of John 8 has to do with Jesus' teaching that if His hearers had known and loved the Father, they would know and love Jesus. But since they didn't know and love Jesus, they did not know and love the Father. Whoever hates me, on the contrary, he said in John 15, 23, hates my father also. You cannot love Yahweh and hate Christ. What about judgment? I think part of the deity, part of the value of worship is seen in what happens if you reject God, isn't it? What about the judgment for rejecting Christ? Christ said in Luke 20, 17 and 18, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Now listen to this. This is from the mouth of Christ. 
Whosoever shall fall upon that stone as in trip over it. Sometimes this text is meaning they fall on him for mercy. That's not what this is saying. He's a stone of stumbling in that prophecy. Listen to what he says. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, very descriptive language of judgment, it will grind him to powder. So, for those who do not receive Christ and do not render to Christ his worth, there is grave judgment that awaits them. In fact, he is the final revelation of God to the world such that if they reject Christ, there is only judgment. He is that means whereby people will either accept and worship God or they will reject and hate God. And finally, their damnation, as Scripture says, is just if they reject God the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? John 15, 26. I think this is one of the most remarkable texts in all of Scripture concerning the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when the Helper comes, the Comforter, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, there's that same word, proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. As I said before in the introduction, this trinity, the Trinity is here in one text. Each person is spoken of in a distinct way, and yet they work in harmony together. That's one of the beautiful things in the New Testament, to see the plan of God that was decreed before the foundations of the world was laid, working out. And you see the, the great and full, full revelation of God and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father. And you see how they work marvelous, marvelously and perfectly together for our redemption. But contrary to our redemption, what happens when you reject the Holy Spirit? What happens? And some of the strongest language that's ever used in Scripture is spoken of by Christ for those who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, listen to this, this is so weighty. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever, listen to this, blasphemies they utter. And believe it or not, all of us have committed fierce blasphemies at one time or another in our lives. We are born blaspheming God. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. I don't know if there's a more sober text in all of Scripture than that. Here we have, by the words of Christ, who would be rejected, and on the cross pray, cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says, all manner of sin will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, in a sense, all sin is eternal, but this is a sin that is never forgiven. Notice then, 
that there is no leniency for rejecting the revealed persons of either Christ or the Holy Spirit. Thus, with the Father, they are to be reverenced and worshipped and loved and adored as the one true and living God. In, the con- in concluding, and it's this and we're done. Is sincere worship and all that it means, all that that means, is sincere worship rendered unto the triune God, Yahweh, who is one God, the first focus of your life? I believe that's exactly what this command is concerned concern with. I think that's why it's given first. I think that's why it is so necessary for not only us here tonight as Christians, but anyone who would come to God. God will not accept anyone who puts him besides their pantheon of other gods. He demands our soul allegiance. He demands our only, the heart, the mind, the strength, the soul, the spirit. The New Testament talks about it in all these terms. Our all, that it's fixed on him alone as our God, and that because he is God alone, so too is our worship fixed on him. Is that your heart? I pray that it is.